Why are Tom and Jerry so sad? In honor of HBO Max briefly linking to the Snyder Cut to Tom and Jerry, just for a little while, what's the most memorable leak of your life? I'm Katie Rich, and I'm thinking about all the times I put the wrong hyperlink in a story and not noticed it, and uh, glad it wasn't that high stakes. Also, I was remembering when X-Men Origins Wolverine leaked online in its entirety like a week before opening, and Roger Friedman, who was employed by Fox, reviewed it. It was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I am Matt Patches, and the best leak of my life was when the core episodes leaked in advance, and I was recapping them for Vulture, so I didn't have to stay up so late. And the, the worst leak of my life is, uh, or the most memorable, is when I was in first grade and some bully came under the stall and screamed at me while I was peeing. It was so rude. I still think about it when I go into a, a stall. Ugh. Just not good. Hey. Hey, it's me, David the Seven, and I'm going to say watching the Long Night, the battle episode of the Game of Thrones, uh, the day before is a 240 pixel wide <laughs> GIF. <laughs> it was sweet. Wasn't it like every like? Was it like every fifth frame or something? Like it wasn't yes. even. <laughs> I remember it was, that. And it was at whatever speed somebody had encoded some GIF at. It was uh, super yes, fun. It was and more yes. of a photo roman than it was a, uh, cin- a cinema. <laughs> And this thing you were so excited for, for all that time, you still committed to watching it in that form? Knowing... Dave is unspoilable. No, no spoilers can... It's not about, it's not about the information. Something. It's more about the, just the experience of, of seeing the story for the first time. Whatever. Um, I am David Ehrlich. Uh, definitely, the, the leak I go back to is the one standing next to Regis Philbin, may you rest in peace, uh, at a movie theater in Connecticut. That was pretty memorable. Um, just to piggyback on Patch's uh, hilarious joke. But okay. uh, I... I think, I guess it has to, for me, it has to go back to the Napster leak of Kid A in 2000 when the songs began sort of leaking out at random and people, it was such a, it was such a paradigm shift from OK Computer that there were a lot of questions as to whether or not it actually was Radiohead's new album at all or if it was just some other mislabeled music. Uh, And then it turned out to be once all 10 tracks were assembled, I guess, uh, it turned out to be the greatest album recorded in my lifetime. So what are the odds? Anyway, good leak. Just like the long winter episode of Game of Thrones. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 309, oh, no, 339, sorry, but it's Pandemic 51, one away from something. Hey. I, we, we, haven't, we haven't made a plan for commemorating our Pandemic 52, and I guess that means we didn't we didn't name the first one Pandemic 1 because... Well, in true pandemic we, fashion, it should just be more of the same on the anniversary true. episode. <laughs> just keep at it, guys. Keeping at it. But if our surprise is that we all got uh, early access to the vaccine for our 52nd pandemic episode, and I think live show thrilled. It's close. That. Out of out of four members <laughs> of my family, two have been vaccinated. So we the, should have the Gonzaleses are 50 percent a live show at Madison Square Garden. What else is going on there? We we could sell we out could Madison sell Square out Garden at its current so capacity, <laughs> <laughs> which is I've been watching the Ranger games that they've been playing there, and they're allowing somewhere between like one and two thousand fans out of eighteen thousand two hundred seats. Um, I think you know, given how stir crazy people are, if we really put pedal mm-hmm. to the metal, we could we could get a thousand bucks in the G- seats. Gave away free tickets. Yeah, I, I, I think it was sort of assumed that the tickets would be free. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, anyway, 
Uh, it's the week of Wednesday, March 10th, 2021. That's the day that 1978, The Incredible Hulk, starring Bill Bixby as David Banner, premiered on CBS. It's also the day before the day in 2020 that Tom Hanks got COVID. Never forget. <laughs> uh, I believe uh, we mentioned Madison Square Garden, which would have been a nice tee up to Godzilla because of the famous scene in the 1998 Godzilla where Godzilla which goes there. Which takes place in an arena that looks absolutely nothing like the interior of Madison Square Garden. Is that where Godzilla lays her eggs in that movie? I believe that is where Godzilla lays her eggs. Although Godzilla is kind of non-binary in the movie. I mean, like she they, she reproduces asexually. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how that would I'm not sure that's what that's uh, well, I tricked no, you. No, that is producing asexual. Asexually is not uh, necessarily a um, symptom of being non-binary yeah, in human sense. Uh, <laughs> Clarify <but>, that. Um, <laughs> I don't think there was much confusion on that point, but okay, uh, I, just, I, I, I believe I, that. But I want to be sure. Um, in a movie that took great pains to uh, attack Roger Ebert as the mayor of New York City, I think they they definitely didn't take the attention to pay respects to Godzilla's pronouns. Um, uh, well, David tricked you into talking about Godzilla because yeah. Dave isn't. And we I have now I, we review. have crossed a Rubicon where I now know someone who has seen Godzilla versus King Kong, wow. and I've Ooh. I've heard reports back from the film. I can tell you everything that happens in it, and uh, that's really all I'm legally allowed to say at this point. But it's the um, new knowing someone who's been vaccinated. The other thing that everyone no, it's the new it's the new knowing someone who's seen the Snyder Cut. Please let's take this in baby steps. <laughs> you uh, mean all the twelve year olds who tried to watch <laughs> Tom and Jerry? Um, so before we get to our reviews, I, I also wanted to take this opportunity to review our protocol for for when the pandemic episodes are actually going to be over. And Dave, I'd like to make a a new proposal to you, a new con- a new condition that the pandemic window the pandemic era will be over when i collect one of the galactic legends in star wars galaxy oh series <laughs> galaxy of heroes. i'm early in the show that, to actually fauci was talking about it today and uh he was saying it doesn't... i think we know what our next punishment for now reviews are once godzilla versus kong comes out <laughs> i'm saying fauci was saying and, and i think he's probably right about this it's not looking great for 2021 um, I, I don't have that kind of money to throw around, and the prerequisites for these characters are out of control, but hopefully in Q1 2022, maybe. We'll see. Anyway, uh, we will not be talking about Godzilla at greater length this week, because we have one review from Dave Indicator, and so far, uh, I, judging by its headline, I am quite a fan. It says, giving David his due. I have to give David his due. Have to. After his many mentions of Ted Lasso, I was looking for something to binge, so I watched the first episode and was immediately hooked. It is charming. I have watched three episodes so far. My voice just cracked because it's my bar mitzvah. Everyone, welcome. Uh, (laughs) And I don't think I haven't had an emotional response to an episode yet. Otherwise, as a cranky, though somewhat older man, 62, game recognized game, David. I first encountered three of you guesting on Blank Check. From there, I started listening to Dave Seven on the Storm Spoilers podcast. Then I dove into fighting in the war room. I thoroughly enjoy the four of you and always feel something is missing when one of you is absent. I appreciate your interplay. I always really like it when Dave just kind of sits back and listens to the discourse and comes in with his perspective. It's kind of like a... Mm-hmm. I'm editorializing now. But it's a real, like, silent Bob-like approach when you think about it, Dave. Well, except when I, like, call... What is it? Tribe Call Quest, Bone Thugs and Harmony? But, like, really, it's the passion you guys are here for. Sure. Matt, <laughs> I have two friends whose tone and timber of voice is somewhat similar to yours. Oddly, they somewhat resemble each other. 
So yes, I had to search for images of Mr. Patches on the interwebs. I'm curious, Dave Indicator, if you actually just Googled Mr. Patches, M-R <laughs> Patches, and saw what comes up. I'm doing that um, right now. Yeah, up, yeah, please report back momentarily. You could all be cousins. Interesting. Interesting. Oh, it was a 1970 children's television show in St. Louis, Mr. Patches. It was. Uh, and... Uh, Katie, as a part of the blue bubble in a mostly red state, I just got to say, North Carolina, get your act together. Oh, come on. We're working on it. If Georgia can send two Democrats to the U.S. Senate, then what is going on in North Carolina? I always thought there would be North Carolina leading the charge in the South. Leading the change, rather. Bless your heart. Keep up the good work. (laughs) Dave in Decatur. Georgia's back on the hot seat today. No fault of their uh, residents, but What they do? Uh, they are trying to, as, and as of the time we're recording this, have passed to the Georgia Senate a bill to overturn a lot of the um, voting rights legislation that was made it possible for so many people to vote in the runoff and election yeah, in 2020. State legislatures are messy, which is why everyone needs to vote in local elections. Boy, do they ever. Uh, thanks so much, David Decatur. I just want to point out a friend of mine, uh, speaking of Ted Lasso, was saying to me yesterday that Ted Lasso is essentially the story of forgetting Sarah Marshall come true <laughs> because it's uh, like Ted Lasso, Jason Snakes being the um, being the the Peter Bretter character, uh, the Jason Siegel character from Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Now that uh, Harry Styles in this analogy, if he is indeed dating Olivia Wilde, then I do not think we can make the assumption that he is based on the available evidence. Is sort of the uh, Russell Brand. Uh, version of the story. And Wait, are you a Olivia Wilde and Harry Styles truth? You're opening so many cans of worms in this what? intro. Yeah, he's opening a lot I'm of still thinking about how David oh. read that at his bar mitzvah, and suddenly it was a review on the podcast. <laughs> I, I am not <laughs> a, I thought it's usually truther. in Hebrew. I'm not a truth. It, it was, I mean, yes, it was. I, I, my voice can break in several different languages. Uh, I'm not a truther or a denier because I know literally nothing about what is happening in either of their personal lives. When um, a man know, loves a woman. All I know is that you're... This podcast has subjects that people could see, like in the title of the podcast, <laughs> we'll like before they start. We're, I'm There's no suspense; they're I'm, waiting to get to the subject. I'm reading a review from someone who likes the show and listens to Blank Smash Check. Smash that skip ahead the 15 model, seconds. The button. model of let's talk That's for true. 45 minutes about Zach Braff before we get to Treasure Planet. So, you know, this is uh, this is how we do. Um, all I know about Olivia Olivia Wilde is that. She and Jason Sudeikis appear to have sold the house that they lived on a block away from me. Uh, I would imagine that would be. The How do you case. know yes. that? I because it's been it's been like boarded up for the last eighteen months. Um, I thought that they were just in L.A. for the winter, and then when news came out that they had divorced or broken up, whatever was going on in their lives, um, it, it seemed like that was been sold. I used to see them in the neighborhood on a weekly basis, all the time. Um, I watched the eclipse with Jason Sudeikis. That one time there was an eclipse. Uh, they are fun neighbors. Um, too bad. Anyway, Ted Lasso, great show. Second season, going to be lit. Excited for Olivia Wilde's movie, too. Uh, thank you for leaving a review, Dave Indicator. Follow his lead. Vote blue where you, wherever you live. Leave us a review on iTunes of Fighting in the War Room. Tell us where you're from. Use some alliteration. We'll read it on the show. My voice might crack. 13 all over again. 35 going on 13. 36, Jesus Christ. Pandemic year doesn't count. I'm 35 again. Mm-hmm. That's fair. I think we should all make that a universal pact moving forward. If if all of us can agree to that, there's there's really no one to tell us it's not true. But I don't want to die a year earlier. Did you mean, die telling everyone you're a year younger than yeah. you are? I don't want. I want. I, well, I should tell them I'm older. I want to die old. Wow, you Listen, want credit for more life than you've lived. I'm a hundred. <laughs> 
I don't you think are the anyone... Mr. Patches, the St. Louis uh, children's entertainer from 1970. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a show that David Decatur may have grown up watching. Thank you for reviewing the show. Onwards. Pixar's Onward. I guess I'll set up the WandaVision finale, but we should kick it to Dave soon because Dave understands these things. Could Dave understands? I okay. Let's what do this. don't you understand? <laughs> this is this was Marvel's first streaming television that has been controlled by the Kevin Feige Marvel Studios juggernaut. Previously, it used to be Marvel TV controlled by a gentleman named Jeff Loeb. He's the one who did uh, the uh, Agents of Shield. Uh, Agent Carter, the Netflix series, and the Inhumans uh, limited series, I think it was. Um, Limited uh, series only because it was canceled after one season. Yes, uh, not good. Um, It played played in IMAX theaters before its premiere, so it's basically... As we know from, or as we should keep in mind with Zack Snyder's Justice League on top of us, bigger in terms of size of negative does not mean the movie's good. Uh, as we learned with like in humans. Uh, anyway, new new direction for Marvel Studios. Um, Katie, uh, I would love to, love to actually start with you because you have just come off of uh, uh, basically a decade of doing this podcast uh, with me, and uh, this entire time I've been trying to tell you uh, why you should care about like Infinity Stones or uh, weird characters from space. Or um, why somebody does or doesn't have an accent or some sort of weird fucking costume thing. So, what did you think of WandaVision before I do the thing I always do? Has Marvel managed to come this full way to sort of make entertainment that at least is uh, appealing to you? Yeah, I mean, the Marvel movies have always been appealing to me. And I even you know came around on the Infinity Stones eventually, although I was never able to tell them apart. Like, the Infinity Stone part of one. They're different colors. What do you mean you can't tell them apart? <laughs> Guess so. Like, as I said to Dave... Yellow like, does not look like blue. I knew that Vision had the Mind Stone because it was on his head. And that really helped with uh, context mm. clues. Um, the 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 Mind Stone or the uh, Infinity Stones part of WandaVision finale, like all the shooting like colorful magic out of people's hands, like eh, that was not my favorite part. Like love Catherine Hahn hovering menacingly over a city. Don't love like superheroes blasting each other. Loved Paul Bettany talking to himself in a library. Um, <laughs> but I thought the emotional payoff of one the WandaVision finale was great. Just the fact mm. that we were spoiling the WandaVision finale. I assume. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's that not why I was watching. groaning, but. Uh, that she uh, willingly had to let go of all the stuff that she had created, and she made this really huge step. Uh, and then I was really confused by the uh, the post post credits thing where she was uh, hovering in space doing magic, and Dave explained it to me. And me. they completely undid the uh, emotional stakes of that scene. Her kids are dead. Um, but wait, no, they didn't because she had to make the choice. She did not. It was not like she knew it was a fake choice. I mean, I know she envisioned. No, this that, like, whole Marvel we'll series is about the absence of choices. Uh, I, I mean, I Whatever. get that it's all like <laughs> leading up to more, like further franchise building, and that that can be frustrating. But I thought that WandaVision, with its structure, with the way that it like, you know, really got out of the full Marvel machinery for a lot of its runtime, like it was able to really get away from that. It got out of the Marvel stakes. machinery for some of its runtime, and ended up, I think, being the single most frustrating iteration I, of the Marvel I kind of universe agree with this. so yeah. far. I hated 
hated the show. I mean, I, I thought the first the first few episodes were were delightful, especially when they were completely you know solipsistic and just really about um, these parodies. And I I expected wrongly in retrospect, I feel so naive that they were going to continue to push that you know past Modern Family and into having fun with the shows of the new millennium. Uh, but it was clearly all said they were just doing a little song and dance because they could get away with it because there's such a big fan buy-in and the mystery boxing of it all, which made blood come out of every orifice of my body simultaneously. Wow. The, these fucking mystery box. I know. It's Was like anyone around to take a picture of that? Show. That's Oh, my God. My wife got it all on video because we're just recording for the baby all the time now, and uh, it's gruesome. It's just like but- Asa, Asa, pat over to David. He's just, <laughs> You want to make sure Asa over, over here. Asa, Asa thought it was hilarious. <laughs> but, um, but uh, the yeah, and then once they start getting into the, the moralization of it all, uh, which creeps in a little bit more with every subsequent episode, my my interest uh, could, was decreasing in equal measure, and then eventually just turning into spite um, because I thought that it was like, such a, a glib uh, examination of grief of everything the show is ostensibly about. It was clearly and cynically all in service to the greater Marvel mythology. I could not have believed less anything that happened in the final two episodes. Catherine Hahn, national treasure. You couldn't she believe is, so that happy, she was a witch? What? You so couldn't happy believe that what? she... Uh, any of the emotional stakes. I oh, couldn't I believe that she was a witch because I was like, who the fuck is this character? I don't give a shit. <laughs> Agatha, she's not a Marvel strike force. I've never heard of her. Uh, mm-hmm. Give me fucking... Give me... who who The white... Who did I just get today? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, the we already already did my uh, Star Wars Galaxy Heroes segment, <laughs> but um, uh, but the yeah, I mean, all of that I just found very flimsy. All the stuff about her, which I mean, the moment where she's like stealing other people's powers—it's sort of my thing. I just like my brain checked out of my body. Um, the the moment that uh, Wanda says i can't remember the the exact verbiage she uses but she's talking like in the middle of the battle where she's just laying down this very expositional character stakes about what she's going to do for her family and she ropes these non-entity children that she has into shooting you know magic shit out of their hands in the most boring boys handle the military i dream of saying such a thing (laughs) you know what it's no yes day and we'll get to that or we won't (laughs) but the um, uh, i i just really felt the the whole floor fallout from this entire series and by the end of it i was actively mad of it and then the the end of like the the just when I thought it could be worse. Go watch the, Civil War um, and remind yourself of the Go horrors. watch what? I said go watch Captain America Civil War and remind yourself of how bad it can be. Out. Well, I think that the conversation, and I'm not the first to make this point, and uh, I wish I were making it at all, but uh, the way that the, part of my animosity towards the show is just how it completely consumed online discourse for eight weeks, nine weeks. Congratulations, Marvel. Well, if someone, could make, if someone could make a film... As good as WandaVision, then maybe we could talk about it. <laughs> but no, just to, to wrap up Unleash My Spiel, is a similar part of... Listen, let people enjoy their shit. Uh, if this is a gateway drug to other more interesting things, that'd be great. I just don't know if this is necessarily allows for the creation of other more interesting things in the market. Um, so much oh, as come it sucks on. all the energy out of the room. That's but the conversation time. around how this show was handling elements of, of grief and then eventually completely passing the buck on that in its final episode was very similar to me to the way that people were talking about. So uh, Captain America Winter Soldier, that was the second one, right? As if it were like the fucking parallax view. Uh, but 
Um, whatever. The show's over. We all get to move on, reset the clocks to uh, the, the Falcon next and the Winter week. Soldier yeah. next ne- week. <laughs> Aren't you so, excited? You know, the Dan- my, my very last thing, Daniel Bruhl just made his, his own movie as a director, his first film. It was at the Berlinale. It's about an actor named Daniel who I did, who who is uh, yeah. um, stopped on the way to the big superhero audition that's potentially going to change his career by a crazy person who traps him in a bar and this is whole spiel. Uh, and then the punchline, not in the movie, but in real life, is that his next project is, of course, playing the villain in another superhero thing, reprising his immortal role as Baron Zemo. Uh, he has who a is hat in now. Marvel is in Marvel Strike Force. Very difficult to get character shards for. Very frustrating. Oh my god! Okay, um, okay. let's let's redirect to like adult conversation, <laughs> which is which is Wandavision. Why it's why the finale is actually a mixed bag, and it's more interesting than David is giving credit for because I think Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany are pretty good in this show and make these moments that have gone viral that people are talking about like wow this show about grief is powerful or like yeah, wow quote this about romance grief is has real. gone viral and David like, yes but, but wait David stop David 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 quote? Oh my no God. exactly no and and that's the the thing to recognize that the writing here is not profound and that the emotion is not built on anything sturdy this is not coming from like years of storytelling or much time given to these characters to understand their whole deal but what i think it is about is in in very short bursts these actors are able to imbue these characters with something the performances performances here are really working and then you get the bite-sized marvel bits to to bring a mass audience to this and i i I don't know i i was entertained by the show i don't feel like it's manipulating and i don't feel like it's dumb as bricks uh because of what these actors are able to do fair to credit them for the actors who i think you know are doing excellent work given the parameters of their perform the, the roles here um but it's odd for me to hear you treat it like it's some sort of sprint where they're starting from zero because for me it's a lot more like a relay race they've been running with themselves for they don't you know, do anything in any of these movies now. and none of the none of the past movies seem to inform this like i don't remember you were you particularly attached to vision and wanda when they were in that one scene in avengers <laughs> infinity war or like they when have, they vision have dissolved that great, they have that great scene in scotland and then they have the uh, scene where she has to kill him which yes, is of sad. course like, i don't love that movie, movie but moments. i remember those scenes well i actually don't i, mean, I remember it, those scenes well it did not it, it did not help my enjoyment or lack thereof of wandavision that i literally did not remember that he dies, and she's in somehow involved in this his death. This is a you in problem. Infinity War. That is a me not a problem, not a show problem. There is so little from Infinity War that is worth remembering. But I'll, I'll say that, this: that my, my the thing that frustrated me about the finale is what you were talking about, Katie. Where it's like we are going to have another big Marvel movie battle. Now, I I don't think that's a problem because on some level it's a comic book show, and we want to see the superheroes do a superhero sure. thing at some point. But what's frustrating is it lost the conceit. It's like. Where yes. is the sitcom part of this show oh. in the very final episode? Where are why, they? I saw someone on Twitter make a when very. When it's all supposed to be in her brain and she's lying to herself, and the finale is about. Why are they doing that, that in service of the show that they started out doing? Like I think the Wait, premise which of was the show such a clear means to an end, and I was I feel like a sucker because I was roped into it. Maybe like Patches was in thinking that they were going to tell a story that worked into that conceit and it yeah. was elevated by the conceit rather than simply ditching it when it became. Yeah, I didn't want it to uh, transcend. And, and someone had a good tweet, and I wish I could credit them, but I, I've been thinking a lot about how it just loses the sitcominess over these last two or three episodes. And someone pointed out 
this is a great note, which is like, why aren't they duking it out and like falling through different time periods and different sitcom sets? Like, I want to see her shooting magic while she's Lucy. And then I want to see her shooting magic while she's the modern family mom or something, you know, like play with the eras, play with the premise of doing the sitcoms. But that doesn't show up in this at all. It's just like it would have been so much fun for them to continue leading into it, to do things that played with some of the forms of uh, prestige TV, which is a huge missed opportunity. I mean, she may not have grown up watching whatever the fuck it's. Yeah, she should have been Louie. Such a (laughs) 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 which which, I mean, like the whole idea of like, oh, I watched TVs as a comfort food. I I watched sitcoms as comfort food in Sokovia during the middle of the Sokovian Civil War, whatever. It's so fucking thin to begin with that they really could have stretched out without any uh, really severe consequence to it I would love to have seen her as Louie I would love to have seen her as Dory on Search Party I would love to have seen her it's interesting that the emergence of superheroes in culture did not seem to impact sitcom or television culture at all hmm Mm-hmm. Makes you think. Um, the good, the important thing is show. the anyway. finale of WandaVision finally gave us a, a white Paul Bettany. We had never seen it before, and now <laughs> we got white Paul Bettany. Uh, Dave, what did you think of the finale? Was it it's it's marvelly? So is it good marvelly or is it pop marvelly? Uh, the, uh, the the problem with doing a mystery box show in this manner is that you encourage the audience to have expectations that you're going to wrap everything up. And I think somewhere, I don't know if it was on this podcast in our middle of the series review or somewhere else where somebody asked me to talk about it. I was like, the one thing we don't know is like how smart this show actually is. It presents super smart off the bat. Like, we don't know why we're in these sitcoms things. It's a TV show about TV shows. It's these characters we know. They're making little jokes like, my husband has his unbreakable head. And people from Marvel are like, oh, it's because he like he had his thing ripped out by Thanos. He doesn't have an unbreakable head. That's hilarious. But then, like, also, it's a Dick Van Dyke episode. Like, the first two episodes present this really cool premise. And then as it goes along, um, it's sort of mystery box it too far. And then on top of that... COVID hit and they had to change some stuff in the finale, which I imagine is why so many people are flying and floating because it's much easier to reshoot reshoot against the green screen than it is to put people in the same space. Or for instance, does that explain, uh, uh, sorry, does that explain why it felt even by, Marvel TV show standards so cheap. I mean, I, I thought that given the way the world works right now and the money being poured into streaming, that we would be past seeing such chintzy effects on shows like The Mandalorian and WandaVision. But I sure. couldn't so, like, believe what, what I was watching. What we know right now is there was going to be a sequence where um, Evan Peters and uh, Darcy and the boys went down to try to get the book from Agatha's basement uh, but the bunny was there and stopped them, and they tried to open the book or pet the bunny, and the bunny turned into a demon. And now oh. what we get out of that instead is Kat Dennings ramming into the bad guy in a truck in a shot that she could have done anywhere with a piece of glass in front of her, you know? Uh, so I feel like um, there are certain parts of this finale uh, that were COVID-affected. But I don't think it would have necessarily, we would have been like, oh, what a fulfilling finale had they executed it perfectly because you're, David, you're not entirely wrong. High praise. (laughs) Well, they weren't going to go deep on it. This is still an adaptation of a comic book property. This is as deep as they ever wanted to go into these two characters. As you guys have pointed out, we mostly just get scenes that tell us about their relationship. 
this time we actually get to explore it. So I would say that even though it may be frustrating as an overall piece, I'm still sticking with it's a great direction for Marvel to go with where if we have more time, let us spend more time with the characters. And maybe it's just a weird group of characters to pick to lead off with. I thought they were great characters to spend a television show with. I thought they with. were fun. I enjoyed yeah. each week checking in yeah. with my two faves. See what it was they're up to. It's the first appointment viewing I've done in a uh, long time. See, I can't I, think of the last show I watched week to week. Like, no, I didn't do that with The Mandalorian. I had so much fun just like coming back to it at like a certain time every week. And that, uh, that I'm sure that certainly didn't hurt your enjoyment at, yeah. of the show. I have, just for mental health reasons, made a point of scheduling a lot of different appoint viewings when possible, particularly, you know, and I say this with all sincerity because it's a really great show, but I'm mostly impressed at the efficiency of the production, uh, Below Deck, which has had a new episode <laughs> literally every single Monday since the pandemic started. That's, um, that's impressive. Which, you know, between Below Deck, Sailing Yacht, Below Deck, Below Deck Mediterranean, the reunion shows, I mean, just like a constant rotation the whole new season. Below Deck references during COVID. to David as shooting magic out of your hands in the sky <laughs> is to really Marvel are. movies. But, um, it just I, makes him stronger. We had Ted Lasso appointment viewing. I, I mean, you know, I'll find any reason to make something appointment viewing. I have Ranger Games now. I have that HBO uh, dark Swedish show about hockey, Bear Town on Monday nights. I mean, um, <laughs> all these not, things. That's not real. It is. It is real. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, I've only seen the pilot so far, but it was quite good. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I just I, I don't have that need from Marvel. It's not it's not uh, being only fulfilled by Marvel. And so that. Bloom is off the rose as far as WandaVision goes. I have far less interest in Falcon and the, Falcon and the Witcher Soldier. Just the idea of it being like a like military e action dudes. And I'm sure it'll be more interesting than that. But like the conceit of WandaVision, the like emotional hook of it, and like the fact that it was like so in many ways rom com between two actors who I thought were great. Like that really drew me in, and I'm very interested to see if Marvel ever the, ever does that again. One, the the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and Dave, correct me if I'm wrong. It's only five episodes, right? Six, six, six. It just feels like that. I, I, who knows what it's going to be like? But I have to imagine it's going to be six episodes. Yeah, <laughs> that that it <laughs> it doesn't serve Disney's interests to have. I don't know. Maybe it plays like one movie. Like really, they shot it like a movie and just cut it up into blocks. Um, I don't know. I feel like a longer a longer structure. I feel like gonna, it's going to feel real good after a six part Justice League. Yeah, maybe. Um, but I just feel like they can get into a situation where they have like the nine episode or ten episode like main You're feed. Saying you want more? Uh, no, I'm just I'm just thinking about how these are going to play with their audience. I wonder if this is like an EP refresher between the next between like this is an LP and whatever is the show. Is after Loki that. the one? That well, comes we got after Black Widow. The Winter Soldier. Oh yeah, coming up. And then we In got theaters we- probably. Probably. Yeah. I would say yes. Definitely. It's looking wow. better and better, like uh, they're actually going to do it. However, there are no Black Widow, Widow trailers on theatrical Ray and the Dragon Prince. So, will, uh, will pandemic check-ins end when we all see Black Widow in theaters? When we all see Black Widow and I unlock uh, Galactic oh, Legend Ray. Uh, all right. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's, go, let's let Katie talk about something else in this next yeah. segment. Yeah. <laughs>
All right, everybody. I think I know everything about what happened when Prince Harry and Meghan Markle sat down for Oprah. And I thought everybody knew. And then Patches at some point was saying, wow, so that was a big deal, huh? And I kind of fell out of my chair because uh, I assumed that the world had stopped on its axis. So I would like, instead of monologuing about this whole interview, since there's a lot to say, I would just like to answer anyone's questions yes. about what the hell's going on. Uh, question over here. Um what is going on? No, um... wait, wait, I, have a, I have a question for you. I have a wait, question. wait, wait, Patches is about to ask a question. Oh, I have a real you question, though. It sounded like he was just vamping. I think Patches might have one, one real question. Okay, David, yes, good question. I'm sure I can yeah. piggyback off. Uh, Katie, you tweeted something that um, if I were still in the business of getting into uh, not even arguments, but any, anything that even be misconstrued as a minor disagreement on Twitter, I would have replied at you. Oh, but boy. you were saying during the interview that it was making up for the image repair that <laughs> the crown had done to Prince Charles, to Prince Philip. And I was just like, what? No, Prince sh- Charles. Prince Charles. What show have you been watching? Uh, I watched the show where he like was a sad little boy who didn't want to go to boarding school and his parents never gave him enough affection and they forced him to marry this lady he didn't want to marry. He comes off like okay. a completely... Like, in the second uh, half of, that, in, of the season. In the second yes. half of that but season, But in the first season, it's him. sad. Or in but the, the third crown, season, especially. The crown does its own uh, erasing of it, whatever image repairing it does for him. Um, he he completely, he's like a concave human being by the end of the fourth season. All right, season. this is not about the crown. I did feel sorry for It is definitely the about crown. the crown. Hurt people hurt people, David. Uh, mm-hmm. And Charles has clearly uh, hurt his sons, which is sad. Next question. My, my big question is, like, what felt unresolved? Like, what was the ultimate bombshell and... What are people thinking is the is the fallout? I guess I'm more curious about like why did they do this interview? Why do they need to clear the air? I mean, they need to clear the air for a lot of the the stories that they brought up that had been reported in the tabloids, like that Megan that had made Cade cry and that they want they didn't want to have a title for Archie or that uh, like that they you know the details of how they chose to walk away. They felt the whole like crux of their problem is that they felt they'd been misrepresented in the press and that the people in, at the palace in charge of representing them in the press kind of actively shirked the duty. So they felt like they had to set the record straight. And I think the question about the follow-up, I mean, there's some like specific stuff that just like, it'll be interesting to see if the palace responds, like obviously about like the person who mentioned his skin tone, like they didn't name names. So like, who knows if they'll ever actually come out about that or about how they, like how they took away their security detail and when, like there's some kind of stuff to quibble over. I think you have to wonder if, like, you'll see them together with the royal family members ever again, if, like, the family relationship is there. But also, like, the faith that people have in the monarchy, like, especially even for Americans who are kind of casual royal watchers. Like, are you going to be able to watch, like, Kate and William on the balcony with their kids again? But I guess that's be, a question. Are they like, coming Ugh. after the royal – do they want to see the royal family dismantled? Is that no, part of this interview? they definitely don't want to see the royal family dismantled. They want to, like, clear their names for having been represented as these kind of, like, selfish monsters who walked away from their family. And so – themselves up as American celebrities, well, I guess, which is what they've been in the process of doing. Well, you know, that's, this interview so for that's the my thing. Like, I get, I think a lot of what they talk about in the interview seems very, is very noble, and it's good to, for people in in positions of prominence to to say the things that they were talking about in this interview. But aren't they still just trying to become celebrities? Like, this is they, I mean, they're they, kind they of on the Obama track, become. right? They are, like, yeah, they're they're absolutely. When are they the getting Obama their track. Netflix deal? They, they already they have. Didn't they already deal. have? A, they yeah, literally they already have a Netflix. My mistake. They, deal. they already <laughs> have the Netflix deal. Okay, so it's just like yeah. it seems conniving to use this kind of stuff to propel themselves forward. They know. They're building it. They're celebrity. When you say conniving, do you mean obviously good for them? So why would they do mm-hmm. it? Like, like, how do you think PR works? Did you watch the interview? 
they were just talking about like how like the family is all like insular and you never get the truth out and we're going to give you the truth like what don't you want to love us and feel sad like but it yes, is it's publicity a, it's just going of to, course i mean any I, interview I like on television is publicity I feel like a lot of people are accepting it as that, but like we're all going to be on the side it of it. It seemed like the internet, or our corner of the internet anyway, and I assume that we don't follow a lot of crusty old uh, British monarchists and Megyn Kelly oh, and follow, Piers Morgan. I follow a lot of those, but uh, I can't maybe, maybe I can't speak for all of them. Where does the crust seemed, come from on those oh, I don't know. Um, they cut but, it off the sandwiches and attach it to the That's home. true. Um, but it seemed like overwhelmingly... Our, our, our peeps were uh, in favor of Meghan and Harry. That's certainly how I felt watching it. Um, I don't know. I, I maybe oh, too I, trusting. I should say that the, the interview was really positive. I was watching clips after talking to Katie and not having but any there idea was what was no, going on. But, yeah. There was no part of me that was like, oh, this is a bit craven on their part. And they're they're doing it for their brand. Um, I mean, obviously, they're doing it as a bit of image repair. But I think yeah. only because they had been so dragged through the mud. Um, and, you know, knowing nothing about the... British monarchy um, prior to watching The Crown and now only knowing what I saw in The Crown, um, <laughs> I, I completely I completely believed everything they said at face value. Um, I mean, the seeds for that are all clearly there in the last 100 years of the monarchy alone. And it, it, it seemed to me like there wasn't a hair out of place about what they were saying and, and how I, easy it was to believe it playing out. And I feel like I was... You know, I, I am we're close to Harry's age. I can't remember exactly how old is he. He's, Katie, do you know? he's like I think he is maybe like exactly your age. Like, yeah, exactly I think he's my, between you and me, David. Like born 50. sometime in 1984. Yeah, around 89. If you Google Harry, Harry Styles come. Oh no, sorry, Prince Harry today. Anyway, is the top Google ranking. He is a month and four days older than I am. Uh, we are of similar wealth and accomplishment. Yes. Um, and uh, well, I don't know if we can call him accomplished, but now I feel you know this is a kid who I remember dressing up as a Nazi for a Halloween party once, we do and that. and then he there was a video that was sort of maybe the start of his image rehabilitation of him serving, which is something I have not done and uh, you know have complicated feelings about. But um, if you're going to do it, he, he certainly put his all into it and was not. Uh, you playing the Prince card, that video of him mid-interview, uh, throwing off his headset and running to join the rest of his unit um, when they're called for a mission somewhere. And, and now this, I mean, which really took, from what I can tell, from the outside, as tawdry as I find caring or, or investigating this much into really anyone's business, um, the but that is sort of the idea of the monarchy to begin with, um, I just I was really impressed by the initiative it took, the the courage it took to stand against your family like that. To uh, you did know, they shoot to, magic to, out of their hands? They shot mm. magic out of their Oprah hands. Did. Oh, maybe that's, that's what she's always been. Doing. It was Harry all along. Slightly more interesting. Um, yeah, I don't. I I was very I was very impressed with. Again, this is a limited and well shaped bit of, of publicity, but I was very impressed with both of them. Um, who I never See, really thought about before. So, despite all of this, I still kind of believe in the idea of the monarchy. Like, I like the idea of having a bunch of permanent heads of state who are in charge of like meeting with like basketball champions and Do going to like help doesn't? hospitals open. No, I think Harry does too. I think Harry thinks there's a lot of outdated ways that they're going about doing it, especially because there's all these people who are like technically royals but don't really do anything. And there's a lot of dispute about what the taxpayers should pay for. And Prince Charles wants to streamline it, but then they have to pay for their own security. Then they're not allowed to make money. Like this is where it starts to get really convoluted. And Harry and Meghan thought that they could make some of this change happen from within. And then they thought that they could move to the United States and still do some of it. And they're basically like, no way. 
So it's a lot of like institutional stuff. Like I said on our like company Slack last night, like the palace needs a better CEO to run all of this I mean, stuff and make the logistics happen. Them calling it the firm uh, yeah, well, really Phillips hammers term. home he the institution. That yeah. That's uh, that. That was pretty wild. Yeah, um, I mean, I think they, I think they genuinely wanted to change it and thought they could, and then they couldn't. Uh, and now they're kind of willing to air out to the rest of us about how dysfunctional it is. A lesson that we, as citizens of the world, are learning about a number of our institutions that reform is impossible from the inside, and sometimes radical change is the only way that you can uh, affect change of any kind. Um, I think that they, uh, and that's as close a parallel as I'm comfortable drawing between this and anything else, but I think that they probably, and I know nothing about nothing, but I feel like they probably have a better chance of moving the needle, at least in the public perception, from the outside looking in than they did from the inside looking out. Um, If that interview was any indication, I don't expect it to be a regular thing, but um, it's just so galling to me in ways that I... Now I'm closer to understanding how Diana and now Meghan Markle are like the best things, like the gifts that were gifted to the royal family in terms of being more progressive, open to the world. Um, you saw on their respective press tours and uh, publicity tours of, of the Commonwealth. And Oprah saw it on the crown too. Yep. Uh, and I, that was obviously the most important detail of the interview that Harry watched The Crown. He was like, I watched some of it, which is obviously bullshit. That they was the only thing that it. felt like a lie. It's like, of course, you watch it all. I want to hear yeah. about the rest of the family, too. Um, but they uh, they, they were these gifts that were given to the royal family in terms of just being more accessible to the world um, in, in a way that didn't actually diminish the esteem of the monarchy. And they ruined both of them. Um, you know what's funny is when I say I've watched some of something, I'm usually lying to try to make it sound like I've seen more, like I've right. seen 10 minutes of it, but for them, it's like the reverse. Yes. Uh, yeah. They're celebrities, uh, you know, royals. They're they're not actually just like us, after all. Um, uh, Patches, any final royals questions? Does Eleanor have an Eleanor's chick in, chicks in, for he, her chickens? He didn't watch the whole interview. I have he doesn't no get the idea joke. what you're talking about. Wow. <laughs> Um, I've already been told that there's no way they'll be casting Megan on the crown. Cause they're not yeah, they're not going that, that far. Um, so I guess I want to know what Harry and Megan are going to do next. Uh, Purdue, they're going to do a lot of boring stuff. They're going to do a lot of philanthropic work that will do some good for people, but they will do a lot of very boring interviews after this, which is fine. Like they have a podcast on Spotify where they talk about inspiring people. Oh, um, no, which is fine. Fuck that um, podcast. Yeah, you- this one's better. You don't. Yeah, this is obviously better. You <laughs> yeah, do. please review bomb their podcast on behalf of fighting in the war room. Thank you. I mean, I hope they start like showing up places, like you know, when people can go out in the world again. I mean, the entire time they've lived in America, it's been locked down. So it'll be interesting to have them as our like IRL celebrities. Please come to the Vanity Fair Oscar party Oops. next year. They're um, no longer in Tyler Perry's uh, house with his security detail. No, although I do remember that that period. Um, also, maybe I will close and say shout out to Oprah, who is the greatest interviewer of all time. And we all forgot because <laughs> that interview was great. And we've just been taking her skills for granted. Wait, Katie, can I ask you one last question that's sure. only partially related to it? But as a parent, uh, when you watch something like this, and I don't know how many things like this in this context there really are, but is there a part of you that just feels bad for your children that they aren't their children? <laughs> That they aren't Harry and Meghan's children? Yeah. No. Like, I'm just, I, I mean, obviously being Harry and Meghan's children is going to come with a lot of difficulties that Asa and Sam and Charlie are never going to face. Eleanor will, of course, have to face them. But uh, the the part of me is just like, man, I feel bad that 
that uh, I'm not going to be able to give my kids so much of what. Uh, no, I mostly felt bad that Diana spent all of her life like taking care of her boys, and that they're not, not speaking to each other, which is really such a bummer. They, they, I missed that detail. He is not speaking to William. Well, he said the, their relationship is space. Uh, which like doesn't mean they'll never speak again, but like they clearly have had uh, a pretty. There was clearly for some years, really some sad. rancor between Meg and uh, Meg. I call her Meg. We're close, and mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> um, the other one, Kate. Uh, yeah, and uh, Tuppence Middleton or whatever. <laughs> is, is Tuppence Middleton related to Kate Middleton? No, can't be. Right? I don't think so. Uh, uh, David, anyway. segment. segment. Sorry. <laughs> Turns out David keeps claiming he doesn't know anything about the royals. I don't know anything. I, that's why I had so many questions. I've never seen a diamond in the flesh. I cut my teeth on wedding rings in the movies. And I'm not proud of my address. In the torn up town, no postcode. All right, uh, this week's segment three is going to be the world to come. It's a romance. It's uh, one of those romances, as I was watching at Java Walk By, and it's like, is this one of those romances where two two straight white girls find love with each other? And I'm like, yes, because uh, a that's A David what it is. movie, if you will. <laughs> well, mm. imagine uh, I was trying to pitch this to Java. I'm like, do you want to watch this with me? It's a 19th century romance. She's like, oh... So I watched the trailer, and amazingly, there's this guy from IndieWire right at the top of it telling us how, like, you know, uh, what is it, hypnotic it is? Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Some such thing. Um, uh, it is uh, directed by Mona Fastbold. It's the first movie of hers that I've seen, uh, but I don't believe it's her premiere film, correct? Correct. Thank you. Uh, it is, uh, based on a short story, uh, by Jim Shepard, who also, uh, helped, uh, write the screenplay with Ron Hansen. It is shot in 16 millimeter. They, they also wrote the assassination of Jesse James, if that's a helpful touchstone for anyone out there. Yes, it is, uh, Western feel, uh, pent up flames of passion subtext is, uh, the way I describe, uh, this film as we follow, uh, a woman named, uh, Abigail, it's played by Catherine Watterson and her husband, Casey Affleck, uh, whose name is Dyer. But you know, just every time I saw him, I'm like, oh, husband Casey Affleck. Uh, they're farmers, and they've recently lost a child uh, when suddenly a new couple moves in to lease the farm uh, next to them. And uh, relationships complicate between the two women. I told you where it's going. If you watch <laughs> the trailer or the poster, you kind of know where it's going. But it does have a beautiful time getting there. I feel like this movie ages well because I was watching it and sometime towards the middle, I felt a little bored. But now looking back on it and trying to pinpoint why that happened to me, I think it's because there are some very subtle revelations at the end, but are revelations at the end about... Um, how reliable our narrator was or which sections of her diary uh, we were getting plucked from because the entire film is sort of narrated by Abigail's uh, ledger entries. Um, So I think the complete story there is full. I just think there's a little bit of uh, sag in between the instant attraction between these two women 
and uh, eventually them having to grapple with uh, an obstacle thrown up uh, in front of them. Yeah, I guess I mean, is I the non spoiler way of saying it. I think the, it's one of those movies that kind of like relies on the incredibly dull rhythm of life in one of these places to kind of lull you into it. Like you kind of need to feel the sense that like winter is coming and you will never escape this, and you have to. Like, winter is coming. Yeah, of course, winter Dave is, liked it. Winter is here. Um, you have to like pump the water to get it into the room, and if like you don't get home before the snowstorm starts, you might die unless you lash your a rope to yourself to walk to the barn, like. You have to kind of experience the intensity of the world there, I think, to feel the intensity of their connection as well, like how desperate they are to kind of find someone in this space and the nature of the relationships like between these two women and their husbands. I'm like Christopher Abbott for me, for the most part, I'm just kind of like, OK, like I get that you are in a lot of these things and like you can be very I keep using the word intense, but that is his thing. <laughs> um, and he does that again here. I really liked Casey Affleck in this. I'm becoming a real Casey Affleck apologist for people who aren't that interested Good in him time. On film, which Good I time get. For that. I know it's very fun. Um, but I think he's really great in this is this kind of like not a bad person, not a great husband, like maybe some fault of his own, but he's kind of trying. He's, like, lost his connection with his wife there. Um, yeah, the, the whole, like, central quartet in this movie of these people making this way through a world that just seems, like, beautiful but awful and made me very grateful not to live in. Um, I, I got, like, really swept away on the, the rhythm that um, Mona Fassfold established this. Year. His Affleck's performance in this reminded me, in spirit, if not in cowardice, of his performance in The Assassination of Jesse James. Um, there's this, this similar sort of tone that he's playing with. And that's true of the, the script itself and the way that he uses uh, voiceover narration in particular. Um, I mean, the, the way that uh, uh, Catherine Watterson narrates this film is very, very special and I think um, is also one of the things that might drive some people away if they're not able to enjoy that. And it's a very literary, it's, it's a woman's reading her diary entries to us effectively. Um, and the diary is a crucial device to the story of this movie, uh, a story that is very much about memory and the way that memories sort of remap who we are. The idea of cartography is also crucial to it from the opening credits on and out. And about the way that the historical record tells us, like what it tells us about the lives of these women and what it leaves out, I think is a really key part of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a movie that was, you know, it's adapted from a short story and that short story was inspired by somebody finding, uh, Jim Shepard finding um, in the margins of an old farmer's journal, a note that just said, my best friend has moved away. I don't think I will ever see her again. That's it. Hmm. And uh, and he was able to sort of extrapolate this whole story from there. But you know the the voiceover that runs through this movie is you know in, in these very literary prosaic terms. Uh, the water froze on the potatoes as soon as they were washed. With little pride and less hope, we begin the new year. Like that's that's the it's part of the opening narration. And yeah. it's a movie that uses a word like farago. I don't know if a, a movie like I don't know if I've seen another movie use the word farago in uh, in casual conversation or voiceover. Um, and it is like that. But I think that that stiffness as it thaws um, pays off enormous dividends, particularly in the way that advice is used in the very end of the movie, which I will not spoil. But the last 10 minutes um, really at home. And I just want to echo what Dave was saying, that it is uh, it's a movie that that worked its spell on me as I was watching it. But it is a movie that I think almost by design resonates more powerly in your memory um, in a way that serves the, the themes of the movie and the story it's telling. But um, it does feel like it's... It almost sort of feels too simple that... when you're watching it. Like, there were times mm. where, like, there would be, like, a diary entry and then, like, a scene of, you know, like, Abigail doing some chore or she climbs a ladder and the 
you know, cameras framed in like this picturesque, you know, like countryside sort of like framing. And I'm like, this is, this feels so much like an independent movie about a woman's place in the world. Like if you were to ask somebody to make a joke about what that movie would be, they could come up with something like this, but this is good. It's not a joke. And then there's like this weird disconnect between just like, I don't know, complete earnestness in the way that Abigail speaks uh, in voiceover or speaks in, yeah, in voiceover uh, about like the the place, how she fits, how her relationship uh, with the other woman, Tally, fits in the place of like all women. And I get what you guys are talking about when you, you know, after having seen the whole movie and about, you know, why doesn't, uh, you know, she appear in her husband's ledger when her ledger is all about, like, the inner thoughts and sort of, like, the keeping of records, I think is all good. But when you're in the middle of it, you're like, am I watching, like, a carol that's not interesting? Like, huh. it, it sort of ends up, it, I think it might feed the romance too early or too clearly there's just something about like i get the story when i've seen it in its completion but in the middle of it i'm just like oh they're gonna kiss and then a clarinet screaming at me wonderfully by the way but God, screaming at me so good. Oh, man, yeah score's good. for like periods of time and then all of a sudden tally's in a house with like some weird dudes and i'm like feeling afraid and then it's like gone and then it's summer again it's there's something it does kind of feel like a weird dream that it's hard to pinpoint why I, in the middle of it, I wasn't feeling it, but why I can't uh, like pinpoint it now. I know what you're talking about. Thank you for reminding me about the score, which I can, you know, I feel like I had been able to hum in my head since the first time I saw the movie and for spurring me to remember that the score is probably on Spotify, which it is. Uh, yay. It's by Daniel Bloomberg. And I plan on listening to that as I work tomorrow. Um, but you know, you know, this is a whole subject that I'm not necessarily qualified to speak to, but one thing that I found interesting about it in terms of the, the cartography element, mapping it, learning, uh, you know, the map of, of your memory, your maps of desire, in addition to the maps of the physical location, it's in the way they shot, it's Romania standing in for upstate 19th century New York, um, standing in quite well. But, you know, Carol is a movie where they may not have always had the vocabulary they needed to describe the desire that they felt for one another and the kind of relationship they wanted to be in. And then you take things 100 years back and you have women, uh, particularly Catherine Watterson's character, in a world who isn't even aware that the concept of same-sex attraction exists as something that's been codified and, and experienced by other people. I mean, she's met maybe you know, five eligible men in her life and uh, from that lot had to marry one of them and um, had never really entertained the thought of sexual attraction to anyone else regardless of their gender. And like there's there's a whole sense of, of newness and discovery to this, which even from our, maybe especially from our sort of enlightened 21st century perspective is very raw and palpable because it's just so basic. Um, you know, it's like the, these... She's talking about the books she's read and Shakespeare she's performed. And like these are the only points of access she has to a human experience outside of her own. And um, sexuality is really just the tip of the iceberg for that. And I think the way the movie incorporates that into its depth of feeling and how it all pays off at the end is uh, is really, really thoughtful and affecting. And I loved it. Hmm. 
I, I think. Oh, go ahead. Go, ahead, Katie, please. I, I promise I'm not just saying this because it's a movie made by a woman, like on the frontier, but it made me think of like Meek's Cutoff and um, uh, parts of certain women, like the Kelly Record movies, that are kind of tell a similar story about like here is the American frontier, like when it was really scary and uh, unpredictable, and here are how people were kind of making their way through this. And I think the like the stillness of it and the way that it's kind of like sitting within the reality of what it was to be there without sensationalizing anything and kind of just being frank about it. Um, I find that. Um, really compelling uh in uh both filmmakers work yeah i i think i'm pretty close to like fully agreeing with david there's just something about it that didn't click for me and because it didn't click for me while i was watching it i don't i didn't make any of the observations that he just made but thinking back on it it's not like other movies where I disagree with David, where I'm just like, where is he getting that? Like, it might have, it might have been there, and it might have just been. It's like with things like Carol or with things like Portrait of a Lady on Fire. There's some sort of, um, I guess, outward passion, like the passion. Their 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 secretly growing passion is like the point of it. Whereas I think here. I, because the women are so obviously passionate, uh, I think pretty early on, because David's talking about they don't really know that it's taboo or anything. It's just they are experiencing seeking out desires outside of their husbands for the first time. Um, it just didn't come off as sharp to me, really, until I like got to the thesis statement, you know? Which, Although I love that moment so much when... I, I... I wonder if this is a spoiler, but like there's a moment of first connection, let's say, and you can see it on... Maybe the poster, certainly in the trailer, certainly on the cover of the soundtrack that I'm looking at at Spotify now, where Catherine Waterson just sort of, like, reposes back on this uh, table with her arms out and looks at this guy. And it's just, like, such a full-body, flushed feeling of uh, discovery and, and joy. And uh, there, there is a lot of passion in that moment, I think, is able to uh, power the movie through some more restrained stretches. Yeah, everybody but Christopher Abbott's very good in this movie. And Katie, <laughs> He's fine in it. Katie, did you see um, On the Count of Three for, at Sundance or in Sundance? Yeah, yeah okay. I didn't like it. You didn't like it. That's right. We talked about it. But it, you did at least get a different side of Christopher Abbott. Yes. I'm not saying Christopher Abbott is bad actor. I just don't like him in this movie. And here in the Wikipedia page, it says that he was a replacement for Jesse Plemons, who had to drop out. But can oh, you yeah, I find that uh, fascinating. Um, yeah. He does, of the four main actors in the movie, he does have the least to do and the most, like, he, there's a real utility to his character that he serves well, um, but it is not as nuanced as any of the other characters in the film, and he has to carry that burden. Yeah, yeah. It kinda, it, the thing about him is the way he portrays this, it kind of feels like in the middle of the movie, it's like, is this going to... Is this gonna go like like you're next? Am I gonna be trapped in like a Western slasher film for the end of this movie? Because his performance is so odd and hard, and even amongst hearing other people talk in the period language, his responses seem off. And I'm sure it's just you know like accurate writing, but it's just performed <laughs> so weirdly to me. Yeah, I mean every era had their uh, you know had those guys yeah, those, yeah like complete socially oh i don't uh, doubt that he's like types. there i don't thought it's like a, the sleeping with the enemy of the 19th century like that that makes sense to me but that's a different story than a, than what's being told what's being told is the margin story that you're talking about and that makes sense to me that, that was the basis of this story because that's like the hook of it 
it's like you finally find this forbidden desire that you thought you were going to have and it reaches an obstacle and does that does that crush you yeah i'm looking at pictures from their premiere at venice which are so funny because like they're there in person some of them are wearing masks on the red carpet some of them are not they're standing at weird distances from each other there's a uh it's an interesting historical record of a very different kind than what's in the movie. And Brady Corbett wore uh, like a straight up bathrobe. Hey, Brady Corbett, who is Mona Fassfold's partner yes. and they have a child together. Yeah. They um, were on the red carpet with their very cute daughter who had a very cute dress. Yeah. Well, the world to come. It's on VOG right now. You could, you could rent it up and not, it's like a uh, seven bucks. Like it's not like the $20 thing. So uh, yeah, it's not the $30 Raya and the last dragon. Yeah. I was like, I was like, maybe I'll try to get Charlie to watch it on the Disney plus. And I saw that it was 30 bucks. I was like, Oh no, no, we're not doing that. You're not going to Mulan me like that again. Nope. Uh, that does it for this week's show. Next week, uh, as we continue to plan in advance, we're going to talk about an old movie uh, on HBO Max, Defending Your Life, the Albert Brooks comedy with Meryl Streep. Which Watch is also, it. I think, newly on Criterion. I think um, so. I think I heard that rumor. But it's on HBO Max as well, uh, which the might be an easier way to see it. Yeah. Click it. Maybe you'll watch the sure. Snyder Cut. Or <laughs> maybe you'll watch <laughs> Defending Your the Life. The upside to the Criterion DVD and Blu-ray, which is coming out on March 30th, is that you can almost with 100% certainty trust that if you put the Blu-ray into your player, it will not start playing the Snyder Cut. That's true. But you never know, though. There's no certainty in this world. Um, so watch Defending Your Life. It's a very easy and easily accessible watch. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches, Senior Editor at Polygon. And I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And remember, if you're ever just browsing the net, why don't you navigate over to fightinginthewarroom.com where you can listen to old episodes of the show. Uh, there's a whole, there's a lot of them, actually. You know, it's a whole years and years of show listen to us talk about endless amounts of movies and TV shows and such. Fightingtheworm.com uh, I'm David Ehrlich. I'm a senior film critic for IndieWire. Uh, what are we doing this week? Next week, South By. This week, talking about Yes Day on Netflix. <laughs> um, uh, what else? Right. iTunes. Reviews. Fighting in the War Room. Go on iTunes. Leave us a review of Fighting in the War Room. Uh, we'll read it on the show. It's great fun. Be kind. Spread the love. Go review bomb Harry and Megan's podcast, whatever it's called. I'm sure it's lovely and boring and interesting and great. Uh, I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can find me on Twitter at DA7E. You can also find me on The Storm, a Lost Rewatch podcast, where we are uh, in the middle of season five, headed towards season six, in the interesting part of Lost, if you know what I'm talking about. I feel like I should. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. Uh, you can find me at VanityFair.com on the Little Goldman podcast, where this week we're talking about the Oscar nominations predictions because they're happening next week. On a Somehow, Monday, right? On a Monday. Wow. Somehow, by the time you hear us record next, we'll know if Maria Bakalova got an Oscar nomination. The suspense will be tremendous. Don't you think um, she will? She definitely. Did, right? Come on. She's gonna. Know, she just won the Critics' Choice Award. Yeah. yeah. The, oh, boy. Uh, and she. she and she lost the uh, the Golden Glow to Jodie Foster. Anyway, we'll see. Um, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where you're welcome to make your own Oscar predictions. Or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was... What's the most memorable leak of your life? <laughs> Think about the simple version of that. This is much funnier. Uh, thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. 
Gun.